Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open to Isaiah 55. Last week I completed a, um, a seven-message series on mercy. We looked at the statement in James chapter 2 that says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. And we looked at an application of that truthful statement from John chapter 8. This was Jesus' encounter with the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, and the woman caught in the very act of adultery. I had some passionate remarks about that encounter. You know, it just was the, it was just an incredible picture of mercy over judgment, and it was an incredible picture of a religious spirit versus love. The religious spirit, the religious spirit, will even put a woman's life at risk. She, was, she could have been stoned to death in that encounter, right? They set her up. It was a setup. Where was the man? There's every likelihood. Scripture doesn't make it clear, but there's every likelihood. He was part of the setup, right? It was entrapment. They bring her. They publicly humiliate her, put her life at risk, saying that she should be stoned to death so that they could make a theological point with Jesus. This gives you a great insight into what a religious spirit will do. It will sacrifice people, okay? It will humiliate people. It'll, go to, it'll, set, it'll lie and deceive. It'll set people up just to make its point. This is what love does. This is what Jesus said. Jesus straightened her up. I love that it says that. She's bowed down on the ground. She's exposed. She's humiliated. He says, women, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? That's mercy triumphing over judgment. No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Wow. That's mercy triumphing over judgment. Mercy protects the woman who's been exposed, who's being used, who's being abused. Mercy protects. Judgment, a religious spirit, exposes. Is willing to sacrifice her very life to make a political point. I have excruciating little tolerance any longer for a religious spirit. However much room you, you give it, it will take that and more. If there's anything that we should be merciless with, it's a religious spirit. Anyway, none of that was in my notes. <laughs> mercy triumphs over judgment. I had a fun time with that series on mercy. And all of those messages are online if you're interested in, in hearing it. T today I begin a brand new series of messages uh, titled God's Unusual Ways. So in the weeks to come, we'll take a look at God's unusual dealings with biblical characters like Moses, Gideon, Abraham, David, Jesus, and maybe a couple of others. So we're going to begin Isaiah 55. Today's going to lay a foundation for this series. So if you're open to Isaiah 55, I'll begin reading at verse 6. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him. While he is near, let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. And let him turn to the Lord and let him have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. 
Verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth, and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Lord, I thank you for your word, for the truth and the power that's in your word. Thank you, Jesus. I pray to your word to have its full impact on us today. Amen. Verse 11 is just personally significant to me. I've done a lot of outreach where I've used prophetic gifting outside the four walls of the church, where I get to speak life-giving prophetic words into people using non-religious language. Be very different from what you'd see me do inside of a church. But sometimes I'm looking at people that are broken, people that are a mess. They have just absolutely french fried their lives. And they sit in front of me, and I get to speak what is not as though it is. I have, I have Isaiah 55, 11 faith when I do that. I know that God's given me a gift to prophesy. That he puts that anointing on me to minister to people outside the church. I love to plant seeds. I get to plant a seed of hope, a seed of destiny, a seed of promise. I get to plant a seed of God's word, his revelatory, his logos, rhema word into the heart of a person. And I may never, ever get to see them again. But I have faith in verse 11 that says, So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. I have faith for that. I so believe that. That God will be faithful to perform his word. Whether or not I ever see that person again. So imagine you're driving down the highway. And you have a packet of seeds in your hand. And you just arbitrarily chuck a handful of seed outside the window. You may never go down that road again. Is it possible that one of those seeds will land in enough soil and it will grow into a tree someday? Possible. It's entirely possible. That's what seeds were made to do. They were made to grow. I think that's what prophetic promises are made to do when I speak them into the life of somebody who's absolutely not there yet. I get to speak what is not as though it is. So I see a broken young man come in. <laughs> He's hanging on his girlfriend. He's got bad intentions in his heart, right? I mean, you don't really need revelatory gifting to be able to see that in people, right? You just got to be a parent, then you can see that on somebody. And I look at him, and I say, I look at you, I see a man of character. I see a man of integrity. I see a man who's going to be an amazing father someday. As a matter of fact, you're going to be a better father to your children than your father was to you. And their eyes begin to well up. Or I say to them, you're going to be a faithful husband. You'll be the one who breaks the tradition in your family, and you will be faithful and love your wife only all the days of your life. And maybe he starts to shake. I live for that. That's Isaiah 55, 11, faith. Is there any evidence in it, in it right now? No more than when Jesus said to Peter, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I bet you Peter did bad things before that day. Peter wasn't ready. 
He wasn't prepared to be an apostle, to, to be the, the one who'd stand up on the day of Pentecost. But three years earlier, before there was any evidence, Jesus saw something in him. That's Isaiah 55, 11, faith. Yeah. I love that verse. Again, that has nothing to do with today's message. <laughs> Think of it like commercials, you know? I want to focus on verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 are life verses for me, along with Ephesians 1, 17 and Luke 4, 18. These have been core, personal life verses for me. They've just, there's been application to the journey Nadine and I have been on again and again and again. Repeatedly, I've come face to face with the reality that God's ways are not Tom's ways. It keeps me humble. His ways are often different from what I had planned or what I expected. Let me tell you what, his ways are often inconvenient and contrary to my logic. However, they've proven again and again to be higher and so much better than my ways. Nadine and I were talking yesterday about a story we had heard Bob Jones tell. Because of the people that we've known and the conferences that we've hosted, sometimes we go to somebody else's conference and they, you know, like they'll invite us into the room where the speaker is hanging out. So we're at this one conference and John Paul Jackson speaking, Bob Jones is speaking, and I knew the pastor and so they were having, like, lunch in the back room. I said, right, guys, why don't you come and have lunch? It was nice of them to do that. It was kind of fun to sit at this table and hear Bob Jones and John Paul tell stories with one another or about one another. You know, when you're around John Paul Jackson, nobody usually makes fun of him, right? He's the big dog until Bob Jones is around. Bob, he can make fun of John Paul. So it was especially entertaining that day. But I'm not going to tell any of those stories because I might get in trouble. But I will tell you a Bob Jones story. Bob's telling the story about this one time. This is how God's ways are not our ways. He's at a conference. Lots of people there. Hundreds of people are there. Everybody knows who Bob Jones is. He's the prophetic guy. He's the, he's the prophetic grandfather alive in the church today. When Bob is there, usually people will defer to him. And rightly so. So he tells a story. He's at this one conference. All these people are there. And he gets a prophetic word. This is what he hears from God. Macaroni and cheese. <laughs> That's the word he gets. God says to him, macaroni and cheese. Gives him nothing else. Doesn't give a metaphor from it. Doesn't give some type of picture of what it means. He says, just get up and say the words macaroni and cheese. Now, he's got a reputation, right? He's been doing this a long time. People are expecting something from him. But God said, macaroni and cheese. Illogical, right? Irrational. Bob, having done this a long time, is obedient. He gets up. Comes to the microphone, he said, Lord said, macaroni and cheese. Turns around and sits down. People kind of laugh. I would laugh if I was there. And, like, and then it gets quiet. It's like, what does that mean? Some woman who had come in late gets up from the back of the church, comes up and whispers to one of the guys who are leading over here. And, uh, and explains how she had come there angry. Matter of fact, angry and depressed. She has a, um, a revolver in her purse, and she's ready to kill herself. And she's sitting in the back thinking, all of this is just crap. This is all crap. I don't believe any of this. Is God, if you're really in this, 
then make one of these guys get up and say, macaroni and cheese. Right? Wow. Wow. God bless Bob for being obedient and willing to look foolish. Who could know other than God? And that was the case. It, a ridiculous sounding word like macaroni and cheese altered her life. She's probably still alive today. Right? She could have hurt herself. She could have hurt others. Bob was willing to obey. That's amazing. That's amazing to me. So when we do exercises like we did the other night at our spiritual gifts workshop, and all people get is one word, or maybe it seems ridiculous or foolish to them, you never know what, how God might be in it. You just never know. His ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. And there are times that we're just one cog in the greater machinery. God's got something else going on. And will we obey him? So this morning, I want to use these verses from Isaiah 55, 8, and 9 to establish a truth for this series on God's unusual ways. So I want to have three points today. The context of the verse, the implication of verses 8 and 9, and some application. So some context of Isaiah 55, um, some of the backstory. The book of Isaiah is named after the prophet who authored it, Isaiah. His name means the Lord is salvation. Isaiah the prophet was married. He had two sons. He lived in Jerusalem. Isaiah's mission was to turn the Hebrew people to the Lord as the only hope for their salvation. Time frame, Isaiah ministered from about 740 to 680 B.C. For about 20 years, he spoke to both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. After Israel's fall to the Assyrians in 722, Isaiah continued to prophesy to Judah. This period of Israel's history is told, if you want to look it up, in 2 Kings chapters 15 through 21, and in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 through chapter 33. Isaiah was a contemporary of the prophets Hosea and Micah, and by the time of, of, of Isaiah, the prophets Elijah, Elisha, Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, Amos, they'd all completed their ministries. Now, Isaiah was a prophet at a time of national crisis. The superpower of the day, Assyria, was about to engulf the northern nation of Israel. And the southern nation of Judah was repeatedly faced with threats from the larger surrounding nations. So he's, he's a prophet at a critical time, at a time of crisis. I think I have a quote of this. Uh, this uh, I think I have a slide of this quote by Harry Bulletma. How would you say that? Bultima, thank you. This is, this is what, how he speaks of the prophet Isaiah. He says, most of all, Isaiah was a great man of God. Isaiah has the courage of a Daniel, the sensitivity of a Jeremiah, the pathos of a Hosea, and the raging anger of an Amos. And moreover, he leaves all of them far behind in the unique art of holy mockery. <laughs> He's like a Brooklyn prophet, you know. His courage is of such a nature that he never, not even for a moment, shows himself to be weak 
or timid. Wow, what a powerful paragraph to encapsulate who he was. I think if I had an obituary and somebody said something about me like that, that would be pretty good, right? So a little overview just of the book of Isaiah itself. Again, all this is for the sake of context. Chapters 1 through 39 are all talking about judgment. Chapters 40 through 66 are all about redemption. Those are the two big pictures that are happening in the book of Isaiah. Chapters 40 to 48, you could title God's gracious dealings with man. Chapters 49 to 58 would be God's gracious provision of redemption. And chapters 59 to 66, God's gracious promise of hope. Chapters 49 and 57, right where we find our chapter 55 that we're focusing on, specifically focuses on the Messiah as the Prince of Peace. With chapter 55 culminating uh, that God's grace will be extended to all sinners who trust in the Lord. What was so radical about his statement was that it included Gentiles, non-Hebrews. Which brings us back to Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God's ways are not our ways. Could you imagine a prophet of Israel saying that salvation was available to the Gentiles? This is outside their God box. This is big time outside their God box. He could get stoned for this. Right. A word about God boxes. With the incarnation, Jesus coming, a man, Jesus coming as a man in flesh, fully God, fully man, in the incarnation, Jesus blew up the Pharisees' God box. They had no spiritual box for the Messiah in human form. It's not what they expected. It was mind-blowing for them. God's ways are not our ways. We all have a God box. We all have a box that says, God does it this way. All of us. I do, too. Over time, I think, I think God blows up this box, and then... I'm, I just find out I have a bigger box. And he likes to blow up that box. Because I see a pattern throughout history and scripture. This is what God does. In Acts chapter 10, God does it again. Not only did Jesus come, and in his coming, in the way you could tell by the conflict that he had with the scribes and Pharisees repeatedly, that he's messing with their God box, right? They did not like Jesus at all. He didn't play by their rules. And if that wasn't enough, just a short time later, I mean, the church is brand new. In Acts chapter 10 in the first century church, it says Peter goes up on the roof to pray, and in a trance he has a dream. We can just stop right there. Peter, in a trance, has a dream. How many pastors could get hired if they put on their resume, I had a trance, and in a dream, God told me to be a pastor of your church. How many would get hired? Read the book, Acts chapter 10. Peter, right, he's the main guy now, goes up to the roof to pray, and in a trance, he has a dream. And what happens? A sheet comes down. There's all kind of things on there that represent unclean food. And God says to him, eat it. He says, oh, no, Lord. Right? Nothing unclean's ever touched my lips. Yeah, I bet. Right, Peter. Let's look back on the history, but that's a whole other point. God is blowing up Peter's God box. And what's he saying? He's saying to the first century church, which is exclusively Hebrew, that the Gentiles are welcomed in. And then right after he comes out of this trance, somebody's knocking on this door, and it's a bunch of Gentiles that, the, that eventually the Holy Spirit falls on. Rocks 
Peter's world. So Jesus comes, blows up the Pharisees' God box. The Holy Spirit falls on Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, blows up the first century church's God box. And it's just happened repeatedly over time. This was scandalous, people. This was like huge. In the 70s, the 1970s, I got saved as a Catholic. I was a Roman Catholic. I actually got saved in the Catholic Church. For some of my Pentecostal brothers and sisters, believe me, they had no box for that. The Holy Spirit fell on the Catholics in the 70s. Millions of people came into the kingdom, got filled with the Holy Spirit in the 70s and 80s through the charismatic renewal in the Catholic Church. And I've told you this before, and it has impacted me powerfully. It was a fatherless move of God. It was, by and large, fatherless. And like anything that's fatherless, it was messy. Take any kid, remove the parents, let them do whatever they want to do. What's the house going to look like when you come back? It's going to be messy, right? Well, the, par- the people who should have parented us, the, the move of God previous to us, should have been the ones to father and mother us in the next move. Doesn't that make sense? But because the Pentecostals had no box for people who could pray to Mary, could actually get saved to be filled with the Holy Spirit, they rejected us. They abandoned us. And we were fatherless. What happened? God blew up the Pentecostals' God box. And he says, watch what I can do. I can love them. I can have a relationship with them. Their bad theology does not prevent me from moving in their lives any more than your bad theology has prevented me from working in your life. Aren't we all thankful? His ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. So it just makes me wonder, when I think of conservative evangelicals that are the the major portion of Christendom today, what might God do to mess with their heads? What group, what social group might the Holy Spirit actually come and fall upon and that it would be as offensive to conservative evangelicals as the Catholics were to the Pentecostals as the Gentiles were to the Jews? I don't know. But when it happens, because I was fatherless, I am determined not to reject them. I want to be at the front of the line cheering them on. I want to be there to love them and nurture them and follow them. How about some of you? You've been in this as long as me. Wouldn't God, wouldn't it just be like God? Raise up the likes of us to love on those people. Help them. His ways are not our ways. I look forward to the day. <laughs> Eagerly. Almost maniacally. <laughs> look forward to the day when the conservative evangelical boss goes boom. Did I ever tell you that my name Zawaki means troublemaker? <laughs> it means it was actually an insult, a Polish insult. When the immigrants came to Ellis Island, well, probably a hundred years ago, um, they would uh, have Polish people come up, and it's really difficult to say some of the Polish names. They say Ah Zawaki, and it's just an insult. It meant either the town crazy person or it meant troublemaker. You know. So God chooses the things that are not to nullify the things that are, right? So I, I wear the name proudly. And I can't help but going around lighting fuses to blow up God boxes. This just seems to be one of the things he's called me to do. 
could have said that during the interview process, huh? <laughs> Thank you, Greg. See, that's the part of what you really like, right? <laughs> that my hairstyle. <laughs> tattoos, yeah. Bald guys and tattoos. Um, so different translations of these two verses, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. I'm laying the foundation for the, this coming series on God's unusual ways. Uh, the NIV, really common translation says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I love the message. I love the way Eugene Peterson turns a phrase. And he takes these two verses and he says it this way. I don't think the way you think. The way you work isn't the way I work. For as the sky soars high above the earth, so my way, so the way I work surpasses the way you work, and the way I think is beyond the way you think. Pretty simple, right? The New International Version says it is simpler yet. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond. Anything you could imagine. This is why I hold suspect anybody who seems to have it all figured out. Those guys who have an answer for everything. <laughs> I used to be one of those guys. I can tell you, it was just born out of my insecurities. It was born out of my pride, my foolish, foolish pride. And when I see it in others, I just know it's only a matter of time before I look at their lives and God goes, boom. Maybe I could be around to love them when it happens. Some key words from the Hebrew here in, in these verses. Thoughts. It means plans or purposes. It can mean actually thoughts. Ways. talks about a journey, a direction, a path. A person's manner. The course of their life. Their character. Higher. It really means higher. It means lofty and highly exalted. Let me get, share with you, again, I'm still in the context phase of just kind of laying out this chapter in Isaiah. One of my favorite commentators, David Guzik. We don't agree on everything, but we agree on a lot. This is what he has to say about these verses. God doesn't think the way we do. We get into a lot of trouble when we expect that he should think as we do. Because we are made in the image of God, we can relate to God's thoughts, but we cannot master them. He goes on to say, God doesn't act the way we do. He does things his way. And his ways are often not our ways. We get into a lot of trouble when we expect that God should act the way that we do. Gloriously, Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, heaven has come down to earth. And we can have our thoughts and our ways transformed to be more like God's thoughts and God's ways. This transformation is a process, and it's often difficult. It's the place where we are right now, both you and me. Hopefully, hopefully we're always in this process of being transformed so that our thoughts more match his thoughts and our ways more reflect his ways. Sad if we ever get to the place where that transformation process is completely halted, wouldn't you say? How does God do that? He does it in lots of different ways. Things change on our journey. Somebody gives us a book, or we listen to a message. 
Or we go to a different church. Our church gets a new pastor. And in the process, we're stretched to react to God different ways, to know God in new ways. There are new influences on our life. So what are the implications? That's the context. That's the backstory. So what are some of the implications of this verse? Verses 8 and 9. If his thoughts are not our thoughts, whose thinking needs to change? Well, his thinking's not going to change, right? We need to change. I mean, it's just really clear that the way we think, the way you think, the way I think, needs to be changed to match his ways. His thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Whose ways need to change? Well, again, your ways, my ways, our ways. That's where the change needs to take place. How much higher are the heavens above the earth? Infinitely higher. Now, theoretically, we agree that God's ways and thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts. It's the practical application that trips us up. Right? When God does something in our life to reveal to us that his thoughts and ways are different than our thoughts and ways. I mean, just a, a very real, familiar, tangible expression of that is what happened to community church when Brian and Donna announced that they were going to move to Raleigh, North Carolina. Right? Profound impact on the church. Was there anybody here thinking, oh, or ways were saying, I think Brian and Donna should move to Raleigh, North Carolina. About a year from now, about a year ago, it was just starting, right? If I, get, I was just telling Garfield to that. I think it's the first week in May when I actually saw the ad online for, for this church looking for a new pastor. Think about the changes that are taking place in this year. A year ago, were any of you thinking <laughs> that Brian and Donna are going to leave? His ways and his thoughts are not our ways and not our thoughts. And yet, in the mix of it, he's changed my life, Nadine's life. It's had the impact on this church. It's had a huge positive impact on the church, the Vineyard Church down there in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's radically changed the Metzger family life, right? His ways are not our ways. So, we agree, but it's the practical application that trips us up. I'm just trying to use something that's really familiar. It's at the very intersection of his ways and our ways. When we have our ways set and we come at crosshairs with the way God does things, it's at that very intersection where two things happen. Trust is tested. That that absolutely happens. Do I trust God? Suddenly I've discovered... I'm going north, he's going east. Do I trust him? Trust is tested. Am I willing to change my course to match his course? Trust is tested. And the second thing that possibly happens is trust is established. Yes, he's going a new way, I'll follow him in that new way. I may not know what it's all about. I've never lived up PEI before. God, I had no idea the winters were so long, but I'm going to trust God. And follow where he leads. Right? In our case, he was heading north and a little bit east. So, at that intersection, when suddenly you've come face to face with the reality that God's way is different than my way, if you choose his way, 
Not only is trust tested, but greater trust between you and him is established. In the midst of that, when you find yourself in that place, you've been there before, and God knows you'll be there again. We have, the and I have been there lots of times. Remember my two undeniable truths of the universe. This helps you to trust him. Number one, God is good. Number two, God loves you. My first undeniable truth of the universe is God is good. Number two is that God loves me. Trust declares that everything else begins at number three. Trust makes the declaration that whatever is next, whatever comes to me, will forever land at number three on my list. It will never land higher than the fact that God is good, no matter what my circumstances are saying. It will never learn high, land higher than God loves me, no matter what my circumstances. That's trust. I trust God. I know him. I know his goodness. I know I've tasted of his love for me. So in spite of these circumstances, those remain number one and number two. Matter of fact, I will look at my circumstances in light of undeniable truth number one, undeniable truth number two. That's trust. When your ways and his ways are at odds, and you have that choice to make, if you can remember his goodness, if you can recall his extravagant love for you, it'll be much easier to yield your way to his way. Now, Scripture, now why would Scripture... Listen to me. Why would Scripture explicitly state that God's thoughts and ways are higher than our thoughts and ways? Because we would disagree with his thoughts and ways and need to change our thoughts and ways to align with his ways. Listen to me. Let me say this again. Why would Scripture explicitly state that God's thoughts and ways are higher than our thoughts and ways? And here's the answer. Because we would disagree with his thoughts and ways and need to change our thoughts and ways, to align with his. We think we're right. We think our ways and our thoughts are right. If we didn't think our ways and thoughts are right, we would change our thoughts and our ways. So we have a God who's bigger than us, vastly. He's higher. His thinking and his ways far surpass ours. And so we have to make a choice to go his way or our way. Think about the lives of our biblical heroes. God did some really strange things with these guys. Moses and a burning bush and a partner of the Red Sea. That was pretty wild, man. Nobody ever parted the sea before. We'll talk about that. David, killing a giant soldier with a slingshot. Not the military strategy any military officer I know of would have gone with. Yeah, you know what we'll do? We'll put our whole army on the line and send a kid out there with a slingshot. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Who wants to volunteer their son? Against the fiercest, most well-equipped, seasoned, trained warrior that the other army has possibly to offer, and he's probably monstrous in size by comparison. Ridiculous. Daniel, sleeping in a lion's den, his, friend, his friends in a fire. Joseph's preparation to rule a nation was imprisonment. You know, that doesn't look good on a resume, right? <laughs> Jesus' friends were longshoremen, loan sharks, and prostitutes. 
If that wasn't strange enough, enough, then he entrusted his kingdom to them. If that wasn't enough, then he chose us, you and me. His ways are not our ways. So what's the application? The walls and the sides of our personal God boxes are comprised of our thoughts and our ways. That w- that's what constructs our God box, our thoughts and our ways. Whatever, you know, whatever they might be. We, we might never quite say it this way publicly, but maybe to ourselves, that the primary reason why we work so feverishly to maintain our God box is really just pride and control. Pride in that I've never done it this way before. I'm never wrong. I'm always right. Or I have to be. Or control, which is really just fear. The the overwhelming need for control is that we're afraid to not be in control. And suddenly God shows up and begins acting like God, and we are losing control. And then if I lose control, it goes back and pings me on the pride thing. I might not look good. (laughs) Oh, no. Horror of all horrors. We cannot allow this to happen, right? Control is really fear. If I'm wrong on this, what else comes into question? I like my way, my life the way it is. I don't like change. I don't want to lose control. So, boy, oh boy, if this is you, if I'm describing you, know that I understand this because I'm describing me. I'm not saying I've mastered fear, control, or pride. I'm incredibly susceptible to all of them. My journey, my spiritual journey, has been one long discovery that his ways are not my ways. And every time I come face to face with it, what it usually means I have to sacrifice is control (laughs) and pride and fear. But let me encourage you. His ways really are better. They're much more freeing. And as a result of little by little surrendering, control, and fear, and pride, letting go of the walls of my God box, i got to tell you what, my life is filled with much more faith and awe and wonder and mystery. Infinitely more rewarding, infinitely more satisfying. The testimony of mine and Aideen's life. It was illogical for God to send a city kid raised in Brooklyn to New York to plant a church in rural Clarksburg, West Virginia. Talk about a square peg in a round hole. Man, every time I open my mouth, somebody said to me, boy, you ain't from around here, (laughs) right? (laughs) I heard that for eight years. Little did I know. That it was in that place that I would learn to both love and pastor people with prophetic gifts. I love these people now. But that's where it began. It was illogical for us to move our son while he was in the middle of high school. But little did we know when we got to Washington State that both of our kids would take courses there that led them on the path for their lives. My son got a course in video production at the high school that the high school in West Virginia didn't offer. And now he works in Hollywood. My daughter would go to the local community college and, and find some, a professor that just inspired her 
on the topic of psychology. She's a mental health counselor today with a master's in science degree. So at the time, you've got to understand, I'm a parent who loves his children. And I get, I'm in West Virginia. I got this church in Washington State inviting me to come and be their new pastor. And I'm thinking, am I going to absolutely ruin my children's lives by doing this? But it felt like God. We'd known what that felt like before. We really thought this was him. I'm ripping my kids away from all their friends. It was just a few days after my daughter had graduated high school. She was not a happy camper. My son was a little bit better with it. It wasn't until we got there that we discovered that they had this video class that would absolutely change the course of his life. His ways are not our ways. At some point, we were at that intersection, and though it was illogical, the logical thing to do would have been to say, well, wait till Tommy finishes high school, then we'll move, right? We did the illogical thing because it seemed like God was in it. And not only did we minister to lots of people there, but it absolutely was the pivot point in the, in the career that both my kids have today, both successful in their careers. I didn't know that beforehand. I had to trust him. I could go on and on. Mine and Nadine's journey has just been an ongoing yes to his ways over our ways. As a, you know, as a result, he's allowed us to live in amazing places. And we've ministered, no exaggeration, to thousands of people. And for many, their lives have been significantly impacted across the continent. God's used us to train and equip scores of people. He's repeatedly used me to open blind spiritual eyes and to set captives free. I feel like it's part of my call. Could God have used us if we said no, if we'd stayed back in Brooklyn all those years ago? Maybe. But he has repeatedly required of us to say yes. And we've repeatedly given him that yes. Again and again, we've said yes to his ways at the expense of our ways. Make no mistake, there's an expense in doing that. But I'll tell you what, it has all been worth it. And I would do it all again. Well, most of it. There's a couple of things I probably wish I didn't do. (laughs) But it's got us here. And we love being with you guys. I'm just about done. Let me end with this quote from Richard Raw, Father Richard Raw, just profound, brilliant mind. I love him. A friend of mine sent me this quote a while back. And in it, he describes the prophetic ministry of Jesus. He says, there are two ways of being a prophet. One is to tell the enslaved that they can be free. It is the difficult path of Moses. The second is to tell those who think they're free (laughs) that they are, in fact, enslaved. This is the even more difficult path of Jesus. He came to Hebrew people who thought they were free. They were under the law. And he told them that they were enslaved. We are not much different from the Pharisees. Through our submission to his thoughts and ways, God has graciously allowed Nadine and I to participate in the ministry of Jesus. This is what I call the emancipation of the freed. The emancipation of the freed. The freed, those who are believers in Jesus Christ, need to be set free. 
That's why I titled my blog, The Emancipation of the Freed, which I have not written in for quite a while now. But Emancipation of the Freed, that's part of the call of my life, to set captives free. And sadly true is most of the captives are inside the church, not outside the church. It's like shooting fish in a barrel, <laughs> any church I go to. The freed need to be reminded that they're emancipated. People need to learn how to live in the fullness of the freedom that is theirs in Christ Jesus. And this is one of the ways we get there, that we yield our ways to his ways. Especially when it, when it offends our sense of logic, reason, and understanding. God loves to offend our sense of logic and reason. I will, I will make that point again and again and again over the next five or six weeks. So it begins, this emancipation of the free begins by agreeing with God's word in Isaiah 55, that for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Let's pray. Oh, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we come before you today, and we agree that you're God, and we're not. And you are king over every king and lord over every lord. Lord, we come before you today and yield not only our lives, but our will, our thoughts, and our minds. We yield our ways to your ways. We submit our way of thinking to your way of thinking. And Lord, while we're primed right now, we give you permission to offend our sense of logic and reason. We might not agree with this prayer later, but we do agree with it right now. So hear this prayer now and ignore that one later, Lord. We want your ways. It's to this end. We want your ways and your thoughts. We want to yield. We choose to yield our way to your way. Come and be God in our midst. Come and do God-sized things in our lives. We ask for the reality of your presence, the impact of your presence, the evidence of your presence, the changes that come from you being present in our lives, O oh God. We ask for your unusual ways in our usual lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.